Um, and, and people believe that the federal government can just keep deficit spending, and if they ever see inflation, that they have the tools to fight it real quickly. I, I challenge that on so many fronts. They don't, even have the, they don't even have the capacity to notice inflation and notice when it's persistent. In, in uh, June of 2021, CPI printed over 5%. The housing market was inarguably on fire, and the Fed's response to it was one, to call it transitory in the press, and two, to absolutely hit the gas with their bond buying program, turning a small fire into a blaze. Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Bernadelstein. We're coming at you live from the New Orleans Investment Conference. I'm joined by Jim Yorio from TJM Investment Services. Jim, First of all, thank you so much for coming. What have you seen so far that has just absolutely shocked you about the markets? I'll start. 5% rates and stock markets near an all-time high, unemployment around 3.9%, and inflation actually cooling. What has shocked you about what we're seeing right now? So there's been more shocking things in the last three weeks than I've seen in quite a while. Um, the most shocking thing was if you go back to October 11th, when we had a 30-year bond auction. And a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to the bond auctions, mostly because they've been boring for the last 15 years because the Federal Reserve is the one who's buying the bonds from the Treasuries. So there's really no uh, legitimate price discovery. So now the Fed, the, the Treasury is selling bonds to raise money for government spending. And the market told them on October 11th in the 30-year auction that the bonds are not as valuable as they think they are. The Treasury thought they were going to sell them at 4.8 percent. The market said we're not going to pay. We're not going to pay 4.8. We're going to pay 4.85. Hmm. It sounds like a small difference, but now all of a sudden we're starting to see what the what the real opinion is of the general market about U.S. debt. What they're saying is we are spending too much money and using using too much deficit spending to do it. So too many bonds are being sold. And then what was even more interesting is that just last week, it might have even been this week. I get to confuse the weeks when I travel. But this week there was a refunding announcement. So not an actual auction, but when the Treasury comes out and tells you how much they're going to sell and of what durations. And the market was relieved that Janet Yellen said, we're not going to send too, uh, sell too many in the long end. We're going to concentrate more in the short end. Hmm. And also in the stock market rallies because of that, which to me is like, if you paraphrase what she's thinking and saying, it's like, yeah, we're scared to sell long end bonds because we're afraid the rate is going to go up too high on those. The price go down, rate go high. So to me, that's amazing. And now you mentioned a bunch of things that the stock market seems to be, I wouldn't say okay with higher rates, but has not has not reacted the way, it's not crashed anyway, and neither has the economic conditions supposedly, but I don't agree with that either. I think we're heading to a recession. I think some of those numbers are either misleading, the data, economic data points are either misleading or possibly even fabricated. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that because your average Joe, your average consumer says, I don't know, I heard CPI's falling, I heard unemployment's whatever, it's under five, that's, that's pretty great. Uh, I don't know, stock market seems to be doing okay. And then you actually dig into some of these numbers, whether that be unemployment, job statistics, or even inflation stats, and you're like, oh, this is just outright incorrect. How can an average person say, okay, wait a minute, things are going fine on paper, but what's underneath all that paper? So just let's look at the, and remember the labor, uh, the labor sector is what they were hanging their hat on for, oh, there's no recession, look, there's low Labor's unemployment. Great. So just to put it in perspective, in the last three months, this is according to the last round of, of the establishment numbers, and today was a new number today, we'll get to that in a second. Over the last three months, three, uh, 700,000 government jobs have been added, hmm. 102 uh, uh, private sector full-time jobs, 102, 1.2 million have been lost. Hmm. The glut of the balance has been made up in part-time work, 
second jobs, hospitality, when government, like I just mentioned. So this to me does not look like a healthy labor market when everybody's a hostess at a restaurant or a DoorDash driver. Uh, that to me, it's outrageous. Now today, the number came in lower than expected. We're talking on uh, Friday the 3rd. Number came in lower than expected in the unemployment. But the household survey now says that we are losing jobs. To me, that's a more reliable survey right now. And to me, that's a pretty big deal. You said what shocks me. The market, the stock market still looks at that and says, oh, the economy's crumbling, buy it, because what they're saying is the Federal Reserve is going to be easier. Right. Just in the last week, we went from pricing in 45 basis points of easing in 2024, the, I'm talking about the futures market, now it's pricing in 100 basis points of easing in 2024, just since Monday. And, and I do wonder, is this narrative, hey, if something goes wrong, which we all think something's about to go wrong, if something does really go catastrophically wrong, there's no shot that the Fed will say, oh, you're going to take those losses. It's going to be like we've always seen, which is bail-ins, you know, borrowing, uh, and just saying, hey, too big to fail. And, and is the stock market just saying, we know you will never let us fall. So is there really ever going to be a stock market crash? Well, yes, there is. But it, can they extend and pretend longer this time? I don't know if you just saw, I was just on a <clears throat> paddle with Dave Collin, Peter Bookfar, and Lynn Alden. And I believe, you know, Jay Powell talks tough. And it's easy to talk tough when things are going okay. It's harder to talk tough when burning timbers are falling from the roof. You know, Mike Tyson's quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Jay Powell hasn't been punched in the face yet. So he can talk tough about keeping rates lower for longer. But all of a sudden, we saw that little fissure in the banking system back in March with SVP and what was the other one, Republic Bank. And this is a big deal. Like these banks have U.S. Treasuries on their books, and they have them in the hold to maturity corral, so they don't have to mark them to market. Right. Mark to market. All of a sudden, we should ring a bell. Like that's what we always talk about in 2006 and 2007, because yes. no one had to mark to market their right. securities. But if they did, Bank of America, supposedly, Bank of America has a. I don't know what words I can use that aren't cuss words. They have a lot. They have a lot of bonds. So a lot of these banks are, are, are probably. Insolvent might not be the right word if they were made to mark to market all the securities that they hold. So the, the point I'm trying to make is just because you can't see where the crisis is coming from doesn't mean there's not a crisis out there that could come. And I do want to talk quickly about known knowns. These are things we know. This is what you know the print was or this is what we think is going to happen. Then there's those known unknowns. We know that there's something brewing in, let's say, commercial real estate, but we don't know how big it is. And then there's those unknown unknowns, things that we haven't even thought to think about. So for people who are looking around, what are some things that you're looking at that might be known unknowns or even unknown unknowns right now? So I'm going to go back to, so I'll give us statistics real quick. Our debt to GDP ratio in this country has gone to 130%. Over the last 120 years, there's been 53 countries that have gotten to that level of um, debt to GDP. 52 of those countries have defaulted. Now, some of those defaults were uh, like in wild inflation or hyperinflation just to in inflate away the debt and have it be seem like nothing in, in the terms of the new world after inflation. The only one that's been able to extend and pretend again has been Japan. They're the 130. So anyway, we have reached that level too. So the way I think it is going to play out is that if the market still keeps telling the U.S. Treasury that we're not going to buy your bonds at the right. We have a price for your bonds, right. but it's a much lower price than you think. Then I think the Fed will quietly end its quantitative tightening program. Which, by the way, we were just in that panel out there. I'm not sure a lot of people get what quantitative tightening is. So to make it simple for the people who are watching some of them, it's the Fed used to buy bonds. They used to, they wanted the price of bonds to go up. So for 15 years, they were buying bonds from the U.S. Treasury. Now, they're not actually selling the ones they own, but the ones that, the ones that are uh, expiring, they're just 
they're just taking the coupon back and then the Fed has to go out and I mean the Treasury has to go out and sell another bond to replace it. So they're just getting the payment back. So basically just think of it easily as the Fed is putting pressure on the bond market. The sell, they're not actually selling bonds, but they're kind of selling bonds. So that's what quantitative change is. So I, I believe they'll stop that and they'll start reinvesting the proceeds. And then if, if things start to really get dicey, they'll get back in the buying bonds game, which then what we are going to see is the currencies start to be devalued. And not, none of this nonsense about the currency in the, uh, the, uh, the dollar index rallying, because that's just measured against other countries that are doing the same nonsense that we are. That's one of the reasons I came here to this conference to speak about assets that could do well and that gold being somewhere near the top of that list. Right, and, and let's jump to assets. I want to do kind of like an underappreciated or underpriced and versus overpriced and overappreciated, maybe overhyped. So we've heard a lot of talk about gold. Now, the first thing is gold is holding up incredibly well against high interest rates. Now, monetary metals, we Real pay interest too. on gold. Yeah, right. So there is some competition there, but mm -hmm. uh, gold is holding up against real rates and holding up against inflation and kind of these kind of more classic cases for gold, geopolitical risk, things like that. Do you see gold is just waiting to break out here or do you think that now you know this has just been a lucky lucky kind of turn of events for the gold price so to me the, it's the latter because it's it's coiled you mentioned real rates and for those listening real rates are the nominal rate of a treasury minus inflation expectations so the real rate now in the u.s. 10-year is about two percent inflation expectations might be nonsense but that's what the real rate is right now real rates being high and above zero has been death to gold historically gold hates real rates Gold's held in quite nicely, despite the fact of real rates. To me, that is something that indicates kind of a coiling, waiting for the right atmosphere to explode. That was my base case for gold. That's why I bought it. Now, the thing about gold, too, is it rallied, you know, 100 bucks in the first couple weeks of October. Every pundit on these news stations were saying gold's rallying because of a flight to quality because of global unrest. Right. Nonsense. When gold started rallying, it was not on October 7th right. when that happened. It was October 11th yes. when the bond auction went poorly and when we started talking about the numbers that the U.S. is going to borrow to send aid to war on two fronts. Janet Yellen, in an interview, says, we have an unlimited capacity to fund two foreign wars. Now, regardless of whether your opinions on the geopolitical question, the domestic question of unlimited support in terms of monetary stimulus and funding and increased debt made most people who own gold say, if I don't own some now, I'm, I'm sure as heck gonna buy some. No, and that's when it rallied. So that's exactly, exactly what it was. And for her to say that, this is the same uh, modern monetary theory nonsense that's been hanging around like a, I thought it was metaphors that I can't say on any of your podcast. <laughs> you would have loved them. Believe it. <laughs> believe in your mind. That we're believe in your it. mind. They are hanging around, um, and and people believe that the federal government can just keep deficit spending, and if they ever see inflation, that they have the tools to fight it real quickly. I, I challenge that on so many fronts. They don't even have the they don't even have the capacity to notice inflation and notice when it's persistent. In in uh, June of 2021. CPI printed over 5%. The housing market was inarguably on fire. And the Fed's response to it was, one, to call it transitory in the press, and two, to absolutely hit the gas with their bond buying program, turning a small fire into a blaze. Uh, so modern monetary theory is stupid. It's so 
so sexy and seductive to politicians because they're like, wait, I can spend as much money as I want, no worries. Yeah, guess what they're going to do? That's what they're going to do. Well, and Japan is a classic example. No well, look, Japan's fine. Yeah. Japan is not fine. Certainly. If you want our economy to look like Japan, you are a moron. Yeah. They are not an exemplar of what we should do with our economy. They are a current case of what could potentially happen if we keep on this. And as you've mentioned in that crazy statistic, they are just waiting to become that next currency or that next country to default. They are not someone that we should be emulating in any fashion. <laughs> I don't think you need me on this podcast because, yes, I think you underscore that, put an exclamation point. It's 100% true. All right, now let's see if we can find a little disagreement. I'm not a big cryptocurrency guy. I know I'm young and you would think oh, I'm all about crypto. Um, but I, I don't see how crypto, which has held on quite well actually here, uh, reaches new all-time highs. Do you see that there's a, a, a narrative brewing for crypto here, or do you think the kind of gas has been let out of the bubble? Okay, so there's definitely a narrative building. And crypto, Bitcoin is one of the best performing assets of the year, up 110% last I checked. Um, the, the story to me is these major blue blood institutions getting involved in crypto. BlackRock at the top of the list, but Wisdom Tree, Fidelity. Everyone is expanding their footprint into Bitcoin. So six months ago, eight months ago, I realized that my opinion on Bitcoin doesn't matter. If BlackRock likes Bitcoin and BlackRock is expanding, they must think, I, I live near a horse racing track when I was a kid. Oh, here we go. This is old man kind of meandering This is, this is why we have Jim on. Right, okay. And all we would do is hang by where the real horse players were. This is when we were kids where they'd take a bet when you were 14 years old. I don't think there was an age limit. They'd also sell you beer when you were 14 years old. All we would do is stand by the fence where on the other side the real horse players were and listen to that. This is what I, this, so this is where I am with Bitcoin and the late money is important. All of a sudden BlackRock, who is like our overlords, Again, we could talk about that for a long time, too. Them expanding their footprint in the Bitcoin has made me interested in it. Its performance this year has made me interested in it. As I've increased my exposure to Bitcoin, in some ways I hope I lose every bit of it because if it explodes to new highs, it'll mean all the bad things we are talking about are probably coming to roost. And that scares me a little bit. But so am I a fan of Bitcoin? I barely even know what Bitcoin is. Am I invested in it? And am I going to continue to invest in it? Absolutely I am, but it's for non-traditional reasons. Right, okay, and, and final question here. So we're looking at assets like gold, Bitcoin, these kind of flights to quality, it's been called, or flights to safety. I might have a disagreement, but that's fine. Question here, do you see the dollar and treasury bills, T-bills, as a part of that flight to safety trade? Countries like the yuan, the ruble, the yen, People are going to say, why would I invest in a Brazil when I can just get 5% on T-bills? Do you see T-bills as a flight to safety as well? Yes, but that's the problem that I'm, I'm seeing. If it changes, if people are backing away from buying T-bills because the risk of that too much issuance is going to stomp the price, that's when these assets could really explode, the non-dollar, non-T-bill assets. And again, so just... You know, we're the reserve currency, and when things hit the fan globally, people rush to the dollar and they rush to treasuries. Which, by the way, they didn't really buy treasuries after the October 7th invasion of, of Israel. They didn't really buy treasuries, which to me was very significant. But the dollar part of it, the dollar is still the reserve currency. The dollar's uh, chances of not being the reserve currencies are still quite small. But when you look back to a year ago, February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, and our response was to lock up uh, Russia's treasuries, kick them out of the SWIFT payment system, lock up all the do dollar-denominated assets. That's not something that a good arbiter of um, of the world's financial transactions does, because it's viewed as, as it buying. sets a precedent. It sets a precedent. So that's in the last in 2022, 
uh, world central banks bought the most gold they've bought in 75 years. I'm yes. sure you know that. You work for a company called Monetary Metals. And in 2023, they're on the same pace. This is a way of central banks to say, do we trust the dollar? Yeah. You know what I mean? Wink. <laughs> yeah, we trust the dollar. And I will, I will say that, to put it in perspective, of a currency crisis or a debt crisis, a domestic U.S., those things, like if the, if the chances of that, when I was here four years ago, I said, here's what concerns me. The chances of a debt crisis, a currency crisis, used to be 0.1 of a percent in the next 10 years. If those uh, went to 3%, that's significant. Now I put it at 15%. It's still 15%. This is just me, my thumbnail. And uh, that's significant. And actually, it's, it's appalling that they would start rolling the dice with such a, a brilliant monetary system where U.S. Treasuries were the, the it's funny we call it the gold, the gold standard. standard. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm sure you love that. The gold standard, the dollar's the gold standard. And the fact that they're messing with that and playing with that, to me is appalling, and it means to me, if there, there's four ways to look at these assets. Trade, invest, hedge, or dig a bunker and jump in, okay? So I'm not saying dig a bunker and jump in, but I'm saying that hedging, uh, Hedging might be the, the way to go with this. And again, if people listen to me and think I sound like a financial prepper, fine, because I guess I am a little bit of a financial prepper. I'd rather be prepared than not. But just also remember, there's a lot of people like me out there, and that could move these asset prices, and people could benefit that, you know, just even if they don't believe it. Right, and, and I do think there's this idea of a Keynesian beauty contest, which it's not who I think is the most pretty, it's who I think other people will think is the most pretty. And so we're not really betting on the idea or the theory or the actual quality. We are betting on the psychology of other market participants and what they believe other market participants believe about the quality. And that's why something like a Bitcoin or even a gold or a T-bill can have a kind of psychological movement instead of an actual true value movement. Amen. I think that's. Did you make up that Keynesian beauty contest? No, I wish I. I wish I did. Unfortunately, the evil Lord Keynes made it up. Okay, right. So, because I love that, because that's very true. Yeah, exactly. You have to. That's what momentum, momentum, and technical trading are. And I'm again. I know you've listened to our podcast before. We've talked about it. But I always describe myself as 60 to 70 percent technical analysis, 30 to 40 percent fundamental analysis. Because you can look at a fundamental picture. And that if the rest of the world doesn't agree with you and doesn't agree with you in you your time wrong. frame, you are wrong. You can be the one guy standing against the herd going, this is stupid, and you're still trampled. So, so yes, to, 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 I'm going to pretend I made up Keynesian beauty contest forever. Just do. So you know, this is kind of, do not credit This is me. my way. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's like a Keynesian beauty contest. You ever heard that expression? No, it's really smart. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. Thanks. Yeah. So, okay, as, as we're coming to an end here, I want to know, what are you reading? What are you looking at? What are some indicators that you're watching? And also, who are you listening to? Other than the Gold Exchange podcast and myself, um, wh where are you actually looking for indicators and information about what's going on now? So I don't want to leave anybody out because there's like, I got my like top 10 of people who I listen to everything they say. Bob Westbury, uh, Brian Westbury jumps to mind. Uh, Joe Lavornia jumps to mind. Um, Oh, I'm having, I'm kind of having a brain freeze here. Uh, guys like Peter Bookvar, um, Peter Schiff, who I love Peter Schiff and I agree with about 80% he says. I, I sometimes, I speak um, with less 100% certainty that he does and sometimes I think, uh, I'm talking softer guys because he's standing right over there. <laughs> but, and I'm not trying, I'm not insulting. I'm just saying that it, to be certain of something to me seems like not the right way and that's where I would push back on him. But I listen to him as well. Um, yeah, well, that's my short list. Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, she's going to be at this conference as well. Yeah, we just had her on. She's yeah, so what I try to do, and what I, when I gave my speech yesterday, we're at this conference and we're all kind of hard money people. So we sometimes think the same way. 
and I always try to fight my own bias. So then I do try to listen to people who are who are rosier, who paint a better picture. Joe Brucellus, who is a uh, not a big name economist, he's the economist for RSM, used to be McGladry, the, uh, the consulting firm. Um, he, I think he has this kind of positive take on things that I listen to every day, just to like, where do you poke holes in what I'm thinking? And Bob Elliott's another good example. Bob Elliott, I love Bob Elliott. Good, Bob's yeah. a great guy, I've been on yeah. the podcast, and I'm like, oh, every time I'm feeling low, I, I listen to Bob. Right, or uh, uh, Ryan Dietrich, too. Yes. Yeah, he's a, he's a feel-good guy. Now, I'm not even it's saying he's wrong. Right, he's yeah. a good one. Yeah, he's good yeah. one. Yeah, right. And yeah, and having analysis that not only contradicts what you think, but but pushes against. I know, you know, Keith, Brent Johnson, these are guys who are like, hey, uh, if you think, you know, dollar treasuries are falling, this is why you should look at this. And, and it's sure. nice to have that, you know, challenged, even if you don't necessarily oh, yeah. change your mind. You do need to hear, if you're going to be an intelligent investor, you need to know all angles, even if you end up disagreeing. Right. And by the way, I forgot Brent Johnson. I forgot Keith. And I forgot uh, Luke Roman. Oh, these okay. are guys, yeah, the guys, when they say anything they say, I listen to every word of it. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people find more of your work and if they want to get involved with well, you? Well, I just steal other people's that, work. But anyway, <laughs> where can they get involved with your work and other people's okay, work? I, I post things on Twitter at, at Jim Uriel and my thoughts on economic conditions. You're going to get my thoughts on too many things, by the way. And if I irritate you, fine. You can always push back. But at Jim Uriel, and I, I love when people interact because I, I think there are so many people out there who, who have different points of view and, you know, who maybe been in finance but haven't, you know, because be, be wary of the people like myself who've been in media for 20 years because sometimes we start to believe the things we say and I, you need to surround yourself with people who think other things. But Absolutely. come to me at Atchim Muriel. Yeah. Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Gold Exchange Podcast. We love having you and I'm sure we'll have you back. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.